If you could please grab your Bible or your Bible app and turn to Exodus chapter 24. And while you're doing that, I'll ask you a question. By the way, that's pages 64 and 65 in the Pew Bible. When is the last time, adults, that you were in a meeting and you were sitting in the meeting and at some point in you just had the question, what is the point of this meeting? Why are we here? Why are we talking about this thing here? I don't know why we're all here. I don't know why we're talking about this. This doesn't require a meeting. This could be a conversation with two people, or maybe one person could just decide that. We have all been in those meetings. I am confident I have led those meetings. <laughs> because sometimes you set a meeting and you've got a good purpose in your heart, but you lose it. You lose sight of it. Students, kids, when's the last time you were sitting in a class and you said, you know, I don't really understand what we're doing in class today? Because it doesn't seem like there's anything, and we've got some great educators in this church, by the way. I love our educators. One of them lives in my house. Um, but, but we all know the reality. Kids, you know the reality. You've been in a classroom. What are we doing? We're not learning anything new today. We could be home. We don't need to be here today. You know, we have an expression that we use in our culture. We have this expression that it is very easy in life to lose the forest for the trees. You, and what we mean by that, we all know what we mean by that, you get fixated on the particulars, you get fixated on a few trees, and you lose the bigger picture. You lose the purpose. You are wondering, what is my purpose? What is the purpose of this meeting? What is the purpose of, of me being in this class right now? This is what we need to do, my friends, and those of you on the live stream. We need to periodically ask ourselves this question, what is the purpose of my life? Not what is the purpose of my job, what is the purpose of me going to college, what is the purpose of me making this financial investment, what is the purpose of this or that or this thing over here, but what is my purpose in life? Or as one book title was so well titled a few years ago, what on earth am I doing here? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Why do I get up in the morning? Why do I live 70, 80, 90, 100 years and then I am no more? Why do I exist? That's our question for today. And so often, my friends, even for those who are the children of God, we start to fix, fixate on the trees. Maybe we find a couple trees we really like, really fascinating, and we lose the forest. We learned last week, when we were in Exodus 19 last week, who we are. We learned that our identity must be received, it cannot be achieved. And in Exodus 19, God says to his people, you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. In Exodus chapter 24, his people are still on the mountain. He gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And I'm sure there will be a sermon series one day on the Ten Commandments. 
But we come today to Exodus 24. His people are still there in front of the mountain. In fact, they're going to be there all the way until the book of Numbers. God is in no rush to get His people to the promised land until they have learned what He wants them to learn. Exodus chapter 24, this is a glorious chapter. This chapter alone could easily be a 12-week sermon series, but we'll spend one week on it, and I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we'll jump ahead to verses 15 to 18. In this chapter, we are given a beautiful and powerful reminder of why we exist. This is our purpose right here. The Word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Jumping down to verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of worship and praise. You are worthy of our lives. You are our creator, our father, our redeemer, our sustainer. Whom have we in heaven but you, O God? And wherever our hearts are today, whether we struggled to come this morning, whether we came with a heart full of the Holy Spirit, whether we were led to turn on the live stream this morning, we pray that your Spirit would work with power. Show us, Lord, that we were made for your glory. We were made to know you and to worship you. That is our purpose. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Four points today from this text. What is our purpose? Where do we find it? Who embodies it? And how can we experience it? What is our purpose? Where do we find it? Who embodies it? And finally, how can we experience it? First of all, what is our purpose? One of the things I love about being in the PCA and being a Presbyterian is that we know what our theology is. We know what we believe. And, you know, you can think about a system of theology like this. Think about your garage, okay? I'm sorry if that's a, not something you want to think about, but think about your garage. You got your tools over here, you got your mower, and then you got, uh, you got the basketballs and the and the footballs, you got a couple pairs of rollerblades, the bike that you want to ride, you've got uh, some, you know, your, uh, your apocalypse food in case you're ever going to need that, you got that stuff ready. And, 
you got a way, everybody's, you got a way to organize your garage, right? You got it, you have stuff, hopefully you have some stuff, you have a space, your car can still get in here. Um, I'm describing my garage very well right now. But think about your garage, there's a way to organize your garage. The Bible, this book, is, a, is God's Word. It contains His truth. But it is a big book. And you can think about a system of the, a theology as a way to organize the truths of this book. Now, we don't believe that uh, our theology is perfect. We don't believe that it's on the level of God's Word. It is not. God's Word is authoritative, not our theology. But our theology is how we view, how we organize God's Word. And we have this wonderful gift, my friends, in our theology. We call it our standards. We have our Westminster Shorter Catechism, our Westminster Larger Catechism, and our Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's such a useful tool, parents, to get God's Word into the hearts and minds of your children. Catechesis, the church was doing it from the very beginning. They were training up the next generation to know who God is. And I'll tell you this. Even those who are outside of the Reformed tradition love the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In fact, tons of Christians know this. Maybe most Christians, in fact, know this, have heard this before. Here's the question. What is the chief end of man? And this is the answer. It's so simple. It's so beautiful. It's so profound. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is why we exist. The Bible tells us that in a thousand different ways, but this is a useful and helpful summary of that. This is the way I might put it. Maybe this language would help you. It's certainly not anywhere near as beautiful as our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, but you could say that the purpose of every human being is to know God, to walk with God, and to reflect God to the world, and by doing so, to bring God the glory that He alone deserves. That's why we exist. We exist to glorify God. We exist to know God. And that's why God has done everything that He has done in the Bible up to this point. It's for that reason. Did he, why did God save His people from the Egyptians? Why did he call Abraham to be the father of all nations, to gather a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself? Why did God do any of that? He did it for his own glory. Human history is the story of God saving a people for his glory, full stop. That's why God's done it to save a people for His glory. Now, has He also saved us to fulfill His covenant promises? Oh, yes, He has. Has He done it to demonstrate His power to the world? Yes. Did God save His people because He loves us more than we could ever understand in a thousand lifetimes? Yes. All of those things are true, and they are clearly taught in the Bible. But the thread that ties it all together is that God has saved a people for His own glory. Or we might say it like this, all the other reasons that I've named, they all weave together or they blend together like the different instruments in an orchestra to reach a beautiful crescendo 
in God's glory. It's all about His glory. Now, if some of you are thinking that seems very selfish of God, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But first of all, let's ask this. What is God's glory? What is it? The Hebrew word, many of you have heard this before, it means weight. It means the weight of something. And even today, we still weigh things. Was the last time you went to the grocery store? You, you put stuff on that little scale. You said, okay, this is going to cost this. We still weigh things. We, we sell oil by the barrel. We, we weigh all kinds of things still in our society today. And how much more before iPhones were invented and all these little bits of technology that are worth a lot of money, how much more in that day did they put value on things based on its weight? When the Bible says that God's glory, when it uses the word weight, what it wants us to appreciate on some small level is that His glory is the reflection of His beauty and His value and His worth. It's the majesty of who He is and what He has done. That's what one scholar says. His glory is the reflection of His being. Friends, don't you know that if God stopped holding everything together right now, everything would cease to exist, but there would still be God and there would still be His glory. God's glory never gets old. To the saints in heaven, those of you who have a loved one, who is in God's presence right now, I can promise you they are not bored one bit. I can promise you the experience that they had when they first saw Jesus is no less powerful and amazing and thrilling to their being than when they first saw Him. The angels never cease to be amazed at God's glory. It's all about His glory. Now, I know... Because we modern Americans, this is the way we think, that it's easy to think, you know, that seems kind of selfish of God. God, it seems like He's really hung up on Himself. He's made everything about Him. He wants everything to glorify Him. He wants all the attention on Him. And I'm told that the, the way that I am to love someone is to take the attention off of myself and to put it on them. So how does that make sense? But when you consider, when you think about that for a minute, there's really a very, very clear answer to it. If the greatest good that you, can I, you and I can ever experience, if the greatest happiness that we can ever know is to experience God's glory, is to be in His presence, then, then God is actually doing the most loving thing that, that He could ever do for you and me. You see what I'm saying? If, if God's the greatest good, if there's nothing greater than Him, if there's nothing better than being in His presence and experiencing His glory, then it would actually be wrong of God to try to make us happy with anything less than Himself. But if He is the greatest and His glory is unlike anything else, and we can only find our greatest satisfaction and purpose and joy in Him, then actually the most loving thing that God can ever do to a person is to save them so that they can experience His presence, His power, and His glory. It's the most loving thing that God could ever do. And that's exactly what He does 
by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins. God's glory is his beauty. It's the reflection of who he is. He wants us to experience it, friends. He wants us to know it. That's our purpose. Where do we find it? I'm going to be very brief on this next point. Where do we find God's glory? Well, to go to our text, we find it on the mountain. We find it in God's presence. We find it as we experience Him and His presence and His glory as we worship Him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And then he says, Moses, you're going to get to come up to the cloud. Nobody else is, but you're going to. In the presence of God, we experience His glory and His person in a way that we do in no other way. And we are changed. You know, do we see the glory of God when we look at a beautiful rainbow when we look at a, a beautiful skyline, absolutely we do. I was just recently in the mountains of North Carolina and Black Mountain, North Carolina. Beautiful country. Love to see the rolling hills. Gorgeous. Thought Columbia could use a few of these, you know. I love the sand hills, but maybe just a couple. It was beautiful. But you know what? God gets glory from that. But there's nothing, there is nothing like being in His presence, worshiping Him, encountering Him as a personal God who wants to know you and change you and having fellowship with Him. That's where we find the glory of the Lord. And if I'm going to get through two more sermon points, I need a little bit of water. So just one moment. Where we find God's glory is in His presence. Do we find it in other places? Yes, we do. We do. We, the, all, all of creation reveals God's glory. We see it all over the place. But we experience it most fully when we fellowship with Him, when we're with Him. Who embodies God's glory? Well, notice this. What does God say to Moses? He says, look, it's actually, I would so encourage you to go back later and read this whole chapter. This is an incredible chapter. He says, first of all, you're, you and the elders and the leaders are going to worship me. You're going to basically come to the bottom of the mountain and worship, but only you, Moses, get to go to the top of the mountain, and the people can't even go to the bottom of the mountain. You've got to keep them away. Moses, you alone get to go up into the cloud. Why? Because Jesus is the new and better Moses. Moses represents, remember who Moses is. He's the covenant mediator here. And Jesus is the one who has gone up to the mountain for us. Jesus is the one who's made a way. And that's what Moses pictures here for us. Only the mediator can go to be in God's presence. And now the Lord Jesus, the new and better Moses, has given us access to God. Peter ends, says this, he says, seeing God is a matter of knowing Christ. Do you know that? Do you want to see God? Do you want to experience His glory? Do you want to go up to the mountain? You can do it right now. 
It's a matter of knowing Christ. Let me take you to four scriptures that talk about the glory of our Lord Jesus. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God. If you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. John 14, 9, Jesus is talking to Philip. Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, it's right here. It's all in me. I'm the covenant mediator. I'm the one who's come to fulfill all the promises. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's right there, in the face of Christ, the knowledge of the glory of God. And finally, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, why did, I, why did I add this scripture? Because earlier in this chapter, in Exodus 24, 8, it says Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of sacrifices. By the way, it's really fascinating. Both sacraments are pictured in this chapter. Moses takes the blood of the, of the sacrifices and sprinkles the people to say you're clean, you're covered, your sins are taken care of. And then later, this is really incredible, Later, Moses and the elders basically take communion with God in verses 9 to 11. They eat with God. Both of the sacraments are, in my opinion, pictured here in this. Let's get to how can we experience God? How can we experience His glory? If that's why we were made, then how can we experience it? And you know the answer. So many of you, those of you on the live stream... It's to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's to say, Jesus, you are the glory of God. I believe what the Bible says, that God has come in the flesh in you. You weren't just a good teacher. You weren't just someone that told me to love my neighbor. You're God himself. And in you, I'm able to go to the mountaintop. I'm able to experience the glory of God When I come to you, Jesus, it's only through knowing Christ that we can fully experience the glory of God. You know, there's a lot of people today that will say, I don't need church. I can just go for a hike on Sundays and this sort of thing. And I I experience God in other ways. And look, it's true that other ways give God glory. But there is only one way to know God. There is only one way to have true, intimate fellowship with God. There's only one way to really experience the glory of God, and that is to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Have you done it? Do you know Him? Have you really bowed the knee? I love the word surrender. I think surrender captures it so well. So often the barrier for people not wanting to follow Christ has nothing to do with the intellect. It has nothing to do with with intellectual things. It really comes down to a person saying, Jesus, I don't want to surrender. I don't want to bow the knee to you. But when we do that, when we say, I'm ready, I'm ready, God, I'm ready to stop trying to do life without you. I'm ready to stop trying to be the king of my life. 
I'm ready to stop trying to be uh, the God of my own life. And I'm ready to bow the knee to you. Receive you by faith, not by, not by my good works, but only as a gift of your incredible grace. Jesus comes and changes, renovates our own hearts. We have to know Jesus as Savior. Second, we need to pursue God on His terms and not on our terms. You know, God, notice all the instructions that God gives. Okay, Moses, I want you to do this. And then the elders can go this far and they can't go any further than this. And then I'm going to call you up. And then the cloud's going to descend, but you can't go up yet until I tell you you can go up. Our God is a mighty God. He is a loving God. He is so full of God. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He's the definition of love. But as one, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll just read the verse, verse 17. The glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. God is holy and He's majestic. And He calls on His people to meet Him on His terms, to meet Him in worship, to meet Him, uh, to meet him through His Word, to meet Him when we take communion, but not to say, God, I'm just going to find my way to you however I want, but rather I want to meet you on your terms. You tell me how to meet you. And God tells us very clearly in His Word. It's to be in the presence, in His presence in worship. It's to read the Word. It's to pray. It's to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's to be with His people. I, I'll just say a few brief words here. I really believe that there is an amazing picture of communion in verse 11 of this chapter. Moses and uh, the leaders, it says, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Another, and then, of course, we have the sprinkling earlier than that. Fascinating things here. But God is calling us, friends, to worship Him. And to worship Him on His terms, in His ways, and so to find our purpose. To be recalibrated every single week. Because you know what happens to all of us? We all lose the forest for the trees. We get, we get hung up. We see a beautiful tree and we think, this is great. And then the next thing we know, we're fixated on that. And we're not fixated on the big picture. We're not fixated on why we were made. And so often in life, the things that capture our hearts are not sinful things. They're good things that we elevate to ultimate things. There's really two kinds of prayers of repentance that we all need to be praying. One is a prayer of repentance that says, Lord... I have sinned, I have rebelled against you in this way, in this thought, in this action, in this failure to do something that you called me to do. Lord, forgive me. Your grace is so good to me in Jesus. Forgive me. And then there's another prayer of repentance that's more like, Lord, this good thing, providing for my family, getting into this college, making sure my body stays healthy, trying to be financially responsible, all of these things, Lord, these good things, I've elevated them above you. It's not really about your glory right now. It's about me and, and my career and my things. And Lord, this, this is a good thing, but I've made it an ultimate thing. I've lost the forest. I've lost the forest for the trees. And God says to us, and it's 
with mercy, with love, with kindness, come and worship me. Come and be changed in my presence. You know, I was just yesterday finishing my preparations for this message. I felt like the Lord wanted me to say, you know, wanted me to say this. Uh, we're, we're so blessed here at Northeast Presbyterian. We have a, I mean, sometimes I walk into the sanctuary, I still kind of catch my breath because it's just beautiful. We have this incredible space to worship God. We've got such a great staff here. I'm so, I'm so blessed with the people that I work with. And we've got amazing people, amazing people. But I want to say this. Don't come to church for the beauty of this room. Don't come for that reason. Don't come to church so that you'll hear uh, an interesting sermon and you'll learn things. You will. You will learn things. You'll, you'll hear a sermon that someone has worked hard. One of your pastors has worked very hard to prepare. But don't come for that. Don't come for the sermon. You'll hear great music by people that are so clearly gifted by the Lord, trained, have worked hard, will lift your hearts. But don't come for the music in and of itself. You'll, you'll come and you'll find great relationships here. You'll find people that have walked alongside you in life for years, some of you decades, some of you 43 years at this church from its founding, but don't come for the friends. Oh, hear me. I want you to experience all those things, but don't come for those things first. Come for God first. Come into this place for God, to experience Him, to know Him, to worship Him, to encounter Him, to say, Lord, show me Your glory, and I cannot be the same. I cannot walk out of this room the way I was before when I experience You. And I'll just say, in closing, I find this so interesting, this pattern, so often we see it in the Bible, six days, and then on the seventh day, we see rest, we see worship. We see it in creation, six days of creation, then God rests. Isn't it interesting that God says to Moses, the cloud comes on the mountain, and then he says, but wait, 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 not yet, six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to come up and be in my presence. I wonder if God is trying to tell us something, tell his people something with this whole worshiping him in a unique way with His people in one in seven. Because it's all throughout the Bible. One in seven days, come and be in my presence and be restored so that you can go out and be a blessing to others. Why do we exist? We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I say it as much to my own heart as to anyone else's, Let's not sell ourselves short by pursuing other things, which so many of them are good things, but they can never be for us what only God can be for us. We were made for God, and we were made for His glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, You are worthy of it all. And we long to know you better, to worship you, to be transformed, to have more of you in our hearts. Lord, forgive each one of us 
For when we have pursued trees and not our purpose, not why we were made, may you be the great pursuit of our lives. Amen.